You may be seated. I'd like to read you a prayer from one of my favorite prayer books, an African prayer book. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, the privilege is ours to share in the loving, healing, reconciling mission of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in this age and wherever we are. Since without you, we can do no good thing. May your spirit make us wise. May your spirit guide us. May your spirit renew us. May your spirit strengthen us so that we will be strong in faith, discerning in proclamation, courageous in witness, persistent in deeds, in good deeds. This we ask through the name of the Father. Amen. You have someone coming to you today in weakness. <laughs> So bear with me. In the gospel text today, Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth, where he enters the synagogue and begins to teach. In Mark's gospel, this scene comes after several chapters in which Jesus has been teaching and healing people in nearby Capernaum. The previous chapter is full of, of several particularly powerful stories of healing the Gerasene demoniac, the woman with the hemorrhage, and Jairus' daughter. Jesus has just performed remarkable deeds of power. As he arrives in Nazareth, his hometown, his reputation has preceded him and expectations are running high. But here in Nazareth, it seems that everything goes off the rails. The townspeople among whom Jesus grew up are astounded and offended at his teaching in the worst kind of way. Jesus is a young rabbi early in his career. His three extraordinary miracles, manifestations of supernatural power in the culture of that day would mark him as a true prophet. Such signs might even be proof that for enough for some Jews that he was the promised Messiah. And yet the people of Nazareth, they cannot make the jump in their minds from the little boy Jesus the carpenter apprentice with all those brothers and sisters <clears throat> to this rabbi who teaches with authority and who apparently has the power to cast out demons, heal people, and raise the dead. The people of Jesus's native community, his extended family, that is the village that raised him, and they do not recognize Jesus. Their words are striking. Where did this man get this? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joes and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters, unnamed by the way, uh, here with us? Calling Jesus this man underlines their alienation from him. He no longer displays the markers of belonging in the community of Nazareth. They are already saying he is not one of us. But that reaction makes me wonder whether the village people really ever knew Jesus as he was growing up? Did they really pay attention to what made him different from the usual village youngster? Even Joseph and Mary were blind 
to some pretty important elements in Jesus's life. We see that in the story of the boy, <coughs> excuse me, the boy Jesus in the temple. <clears throat> when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem to the festival with his parents at age 12, where did he go? To the temple. At that age, he could now dialogue with the teachers of the law. And then when he went missing and his parents finally found him in the temple, Mary said, why have you treated us like this? Jesus answered, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? In other words, don't you know who I am and what my work here is? Have you not been paying attention, mother and father? Joseph and Mary did not see their little boy Jesus for who he was, the son of God. So the same here is true for the people of Nazareth. After hearing Jesus' teaching, the text says they took offense at him. This expression to take offense is much stronger than to just be offended. It can also be translated to be scandalized or to fall away, as in from the faith. In other words, they refused to believe that Jesus was the coming Messiah. Jesus realizes they've rejected his message and points out that he's giving the, basically the same treatment as all the prophets before him. And he is amazed at their unbelief. Their unbelief makes it impossible for him to do deeds of power. Because the villagers will not listen and refuse to believe, they cannot be transformed by Jesus. They're incapable of receiving his healing and are blinded to his divine power in connection with God the Father. This incident in Nazareth appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, which underlines its particular importance for understanding Jesus's ministry. Gospel writer Luke emphasizes its importance by placing it at the very beginning of his ministry in chapter four. And this is where we get an insight into what was so offensive about Jesus's message that day. Nazareth was located in the region of Galilee in the Northern Kingdom of Israel. After Israel was taken into, into exile by the Assyrians, the region was resettled with Gentiles. By Isaiah's time, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations. But later in the second century BC, a prominent Jewish family, the Maccabees, led a nationalistic uprising during which they conquered Galilee and resettled it with Jews. <clears throat> by the time of Jesus, Nazareth would have been a firmly conservative Jewish town with a strong nationalistic identity. Gentiles, represented most poignantly by the Roman colonizers and oppressors, would have been considered the ultimate enemy, loathed and despised by any faithful Jew. Gentile was not only synonymous with unbeliever, but with oppressor in Nazareth. According to Luke, on that day, Jesus was invited to read from the books of the prophet, and he chose to read from Isaiah 61. Jesus used this passage to announce his ministry agenda. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here is where the cultural and religious context sheds light on the deeper meaning of this story. As Jesus read 
this short passage. He actually edited the text following an accepted rabbinic practice. The text belonged to a literary unit comprised of three stanzas. Jesus chose to leave out of his reading that day some key parts which greatly offended his hearers. When he ended his reading with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he left out the next part and the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance against whom? Here again, his audience would have been shocked and angry that he did not read the rest of the three stanzas because it held the key to the promised vengeance. Verse five says, that strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. Verse six says, you shall enjoy the wealth of the nations and in their riches, you shall glory. In other words, to the Jewish community of Nazareth, Isaiah 61 held a message of nationalistic liberation and revenge. Those Gentiles, those oppressors, would be the slaves and the Israelites would plunder their wealth and enjoy it forever while being served by those Gentiles. So when Jesus only reads the short passage and leaves out the vengeance on the Gentiles part and then sits down saying this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it's confusion and shock and outrage among the listeners. What, is that all he's reading? What does he mean? Jesus immediately makes it worse. He insults the entire Jewish community in Luke by praising the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper, Gentiles to whom God showed favor and granted healer, healing. This further enrages the villagers and they try to kill him. Mark's account does not give us all that dramatic detail. Mark ends the story quite anticlimactically in comparison, and he was amazed at their unbelief. The lectionary for today includes the next seven verses as part of the gospel reading. And it's interesting to see those and to understand what Mark is getting at. Mark describes Jesus's reaction to this traumatic visit by describing what Jesus does next. <clears throat> Excuse me. He goes into the villages and does the same exact thing he had done in Nazareth, Nazareth, except with better reception, supposedly. And then he sends out his disciples two by two to do the same thing as well, to spread the message of the gospel by teaching, casting out demons and healing the sick. This is the work of the kingdom of the gospel to share the good news. So. What are the lessons of this passage for our own lives and our own community here? What struck me as the deepest tragedy of this story, Mark, is the fact that the people who had the greatest opportunity to know Jesus, his devout neighbors who had discussed Torah and the law with him in their spare time for 18 years from age 12 to 30, and those who should have known him best never really saw him. They did not recognize him when he returned. And at his very first visiting opportunity um, as a teaching, as a young rabbi, uh, to be a guest speaker in the home synagogue, they rejected him. They refused to listen to him. 
And as a result, those relationships were broken. They were lost to Jesus. That must have grieved him deeply, for he had the words of eternal life. But the words of Jesus were just too shocking for the people of Nazareth. It turned their understanding of the Messiah, of the Savior, completely upside down. This is what Jesus does, generally. He turns the world upside down for those who follow him. His message is dangerously subversive, not as a national insurrection, but as a transformation of the human heart. To truly see Jesus is to be radically changed spiritually from the heart and then outwards. It is this profound change that will make his disciple a new person and will fill them with power and love and purpose and a thirst for justice, truth, mercy, and for meaningful relationships. Followers of Jesus do not just become social activists or philanthropists or advocates on the outside. They become the very source of power that can operate deep changes in the world because Jesus lives in them and directs their every step. So how does one become transformed by Jesus? Little commercial break here. Recently, I discovered a review of a book called Boundaries with God. When to say yes, how to say no, and how to take control of your life by Drs. Henry Cloud and John Townsend. You know, the well-known Christian counselors and authors of the Boundaries series that deal with boundaries of all kinds of relationships, marriage, friendship, dating. Let me read you an excerpt of the review for the book. Our research keeps showing that people feel vulnerable in a relationship with an all-powerful being, says Cloud. Thankfully, God has given us a choice. We can set boundaries in this key relationship and let him know what we are comfortable with. Our relationship with God represents a natural power imbalance because one party is so much more powerful than the other, Cloud says. Boundaries are the biblical solution. It was God who said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, Cloud says. That's an invitation to draw the boundaries where we want them. God makes that okay. He respects the limits we put on him based on our gift of free will. One woman who was part of their study said she enjoyed getting growing closer to God, but did not want him directing her finances. I'm just not ready for that, she said. I grew up poor and I make a good amount of money now which gives me a real sense of confidence. I think God respects that, so I put a boundary there. I see some people making faces. Okay, that was not really a boundaries book. And I don't think Cloud and Townsend wrote it. Actually, they did not. It was a spoof from a Christian satire website named larknews.com. Check it out, it's actually very therapeutic in these days. But there is a lesson here in this humor. For me, for us, it poses the question, what kind of boundaries might I be putting around myself that are getting in my relationship 
in, in the way of my relationship with Jesus that are affecting my ability to see Jesus and to hear his voice. What are my blind spots? What are our blind spots at St. John's, perhaps? How can we see and understand and, and how, no, how we see and understand and listen to Jesus has a direct bearing on who we are as a community of faith. I've been thinking a lot about that recently, um, what it is to be church, what it means to be church. Last year, certain events shook our nation and our church to the core and, and woke us up to the plague of racism that has been ravaging this country since before its official birth on July 4th, 1776. That awakening led several of us to start the Racial Justice Fellowship because we felt Jesus calling us to guide our community in repentance, lament, awareness, discernment that would lead us to commit to a new way of engaging with real issues, with the real issues of justice and mercy. How could we as a community become, as James says, doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves? How could we heed James's warning about those who look in the mirror and then immediately forget what they were like? When the pandemic hit, it wiped out church as we know it. Gone were the weekly worship services, the fellowship, the small group get-togethers. Gone was the Eucharist, devastating for sacramental churches like St. John's. And forget baptism. Isolation, loneliness, silent desperation creeped in. We had to ask ourselves, what does church look like in a pandemic? How do we follow Jesus under these circumstances? My goal here is not to assess our performance as a Christian community during the global coronavirus um, crisis. That would take a long time. Instead, I want to look ahead as we slowly emerge, or hopefully emerge from the pandemic and think about what we want to be as a church. This is a unique time a small window in time during which we can perhaps be reborn as a church as we restore little by little our in-person St. John's practices. I see this as an exciting opportunity. It's also a bit scary. Let's face it, being church, being a church that really sees Jesus and follows him faithfully is hard. Why? Well, because that kind of church is dangerous to the enemy. And as soon as we start really striving to be that kind of church where Jesus is pleased to dwell, things will start to happen to sabotage that work, to discourage leaders, to destroy unity, to hurt brotherly and sisterly relationships, to cut off communication because anger, misunderstanding, and a spirit of judgment have come in. The enemy's favorite weapon of attack against the church is division. Just look at our history of the church. During the pandemic, we were forcibly separated, but not necessarily divided. Division comes from a failure to love. But love is the mark of the church that follows Jesus. This is why Jesus gives his disciples this commission in, J in John 13, 34 to 35. I give you a new commandment, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. This is quite a different take on the Great Commission of Matthew 28 that calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. One important social science finding in studies of church growth is surprising. It is a principle that appears to go against what we see in the book of Acts and the church when the church is expanding, seemingly because of successful proclamations of the gospel by the, by the apostles throughout the early um, uh, Mediterranean world. The single most important factor, according to the social science studies, some of them, in the growth of a church is not eloquent sermons, fancy advertising, great outreach social or social justice programs. It's human networks. Put differently, people join a church because of a relationship they have with someone already in the church. The friendship, the kindness, the respect they have with that somebody, with that person, draws them. Or the relationships that they see within the church. The community, through the testimony of one person, can become an attractive place where more of that love might possibly be experienced. St. John's has often been that kind of community. And this might be helpful for those of you who are newer to the community and who haven't been with us so long. Just a few little insights here. Most of the people who come to St. John's are not cradle Episcopalians. Many have come to St. John's from more conservative or sometimes strictly evangelical churches. Many people who land at St. John's find a place where they can heal from past experiences of churches where they have been hurt. People here throughout the years, um, and I've been here 20 years, people have weathered painful divorces. They've managed to hold together difficult marriages. They've struggled with excruciating family issues, but they've been surrounded by the love and care during those trials. And there's many more I didn't mention. St. John's embraces those who suffer and, and tries to walk alongside them if they will allow us to. Healing is a big priority at St. John's. Much of the ministry at St. John's is not immediately visible in uh, not immediately visible to newcomers because it takes place in quiet and private places. One of our the aspects of our ministry is is to heal people, future leaders, so they can get up and go out into the world. The leadership of St. John's has struggled for many years to define a single overarching vision for the church. What is St. John's called to do, to be as church? We're, not st we're still not finished sorting that out. But one thing we have discovered, it is that we are called to be a way station, a place that nurtures a transient population of students, specifically church leaders in training. The constantly changing population sometimes makes it difficult to land on one specific vision, but I think we're getting closer. The new church leadership, the experience of the pandemic, the new racial justice awareness, and specifically the research being done this summer in, in the area of racial justice 
is causing us to take stock. What does St. John's want to be when we grow up? What are the essential marks of a Jesus-focused church? So if our loving and welcoming and healing community is our strength, what are our weaknesses? Well, we are a small community of very busy people with little time to spare for church ministry. The difficulty of being a small church with, is, is that we have to choose where we focus our ministry efforts because we cannot do it all. Even Jesus did not heal all the sick people in Israel or cast out all the demons. There is a certain grief when we have to face those limitations. Church ministry must be both inward and outwardly focused in a church. On the one hand, nurturing and discipling church members, building community, practicing forgiveness and reconciliation, deepening relationships, and bearing each other's burdens. That's the inward focus. To pursue these goals in the fall, we'd like to do better than we've done in the past. Dave Mahan is spearheading a movement to start a small group ministry so that we can, as a church, become more well acquainted with each other in smaller groups. We want that kind of healing and fellowship to be available to all the community at St. John's. Now the outward challenge, the outward focus, that's our challenge. And it has always been somewhat of a challenge at St. John's. And it's funny how it feels like this is the most important place where I need to speak eloquently and well on this aspect. And it's the exact point where I ran out of time. There are reasons why I ran out of time. I've had a couple of challenging weeks. The last, the last of my challenges was yesterday when my mother-in-law ended up in the emergency room. She's okay, she's back home. But that was a last minute blip that was challenging. Um, but I feel that in some of those challenges the last couple of weeks, God was telling me, this is part of your sermon. <laughs> It's about those people, those relationships, those people you care for that you need to nurture, those people that you need to take care of. So here's a question. What do our outward looking initiatives, what should they look like? How should our understanding of Jesus and the beloved community inform our search for how we go out into the community. How do we follow Jesus's care, Jesus's call to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the victim of injustice or racism, the down and out, the homeless? I don't think we can afford to let that question remain optional or an alternative ministry um, or theoretical. We're good at theory here. A lot of scholars among us, we know that. Um, my understanding of Jesus is that we need to be in relationship 
not just theoretical relationship with the poor, the downtrodden, and beyond. Now, I am not saying that the only ministry, the only outward looking ministry at our, in our church is something that I might propose or is racial justice as it is defined. But I do think that it is central to Jesus's call to obedience. I've, I've avoided being actively involved, I mean, out there for years, always theoretically engaged. Um, I had very good reasons for not being able to be out there. Um, but God has spoken to me and challenged me most recently and given me more excitement in um, my faith walk in just two recent experiences that I've had. I think the most powerful one was when I met Marlene at the Botanical Garden of Healing for the victims of gun violence. She lost her son to gun violence a couple of decades ago. But she told me her story. She was the one who came up with the idea of building a garden for the mothers of New Haven and all those in New Haven who grieve someone they've lost to gun violence. It was transformative to me. It was relational. It was a privilege to hear that story and to, to move a little dirt around in the garden during that workday where I met her, thanks to Gabe LePage, who took several of us there on the church workday or church outing. And the sad thing about Marlene and that story is that she could not find comfort or solace or a place to grieve in the church. She did this outside the church. I think the church needs to be there for people like Marlene. We need to be there for each other. So to close, I just want us to see Jesus in our midst. I want others to come to us and see Jesus among us. And where we have not done so well in the past, let us do better. But I think we can do that. We're a church that, that, that wants to do better. I think we want to grow. There's a lot of love among us and plenty to share. And I love this church. I love this community. I have gotten so much from it. I want everyone to be able to have that. Not just because people fit into a certain profile. And that's one of our challenges is that our, a lot of the people that come to St. John's fit into a certain profile. Yale, Divinity School, student. We are enriched by those who come who are not in that profile. 
I like to seek them out because they push, they push my buttons in other ways, in good ways. You need that diversity. And we need children. We need the children out there disrupting our services and causing us to think and to laugh, to make fun of ourselves, to not take ourselves so seriously sometimes like me. <laughs> um, so I've got lots more to say, but I'm going to stop there. I just want to encourage us to seek that both inward growth and fellowship with each other, but also that outward growth, which is going to challenge us, that outward focus of our ministry here at St. John's. Now, Episcopal churches are a certain way. And even though we're not a typical Episcopal church, I'm going to close with a joke. I told Chuck, and I was surprised that he did not know this joke. And I'll see how many of you know. Now, if I've told it to you, it's not fair. I want to, so you can't answer it. But I want to know how many of you know this joke. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Anybody? Nobody? Sorry? I'm sorry. Wrong. Wrong, Dr. McCrite. The answer is change. Well, sorry. Okay, there you go. The answer is change. All right. So churches, like Episcopal churches that have structures and hierarchies and committees and, and, and rectors. Now, something that some of us who come from more evangelical, less structured churches don't understand is the amount of power that priests actually have to control all kinds of things. So there's all kinds of ways you have to, there, things need to go, things move slowly sometimes in Episcopal churches. We have to be patient with each other. We have to love each other. We have to talk to each other. So anyway, let us be patient with each other. All right, because this work of growth, as well as the work of justice and mercy, it takes time. It's relational work. It's not a program. A healthy church is not a church full of great programs. It's a church that works in relationship one to the other and care one for the other inside our boundaries, but also outside for the stranger that steps inside our doors. And so we need to figure out how to do that for that stranger that steps in our doors. How do we become welcoming in a way that all of us can move together as one unit? I'd like to close us in prayers. Dear God, please be with us as we move forward out of this pandemic, Lord, have mercy, move us out of this pandemic. But Lord, help us to discern how we might grow and be reborn in a church that glorifies you, that reflects Jesus, the savior of the world, the lover of our souls. In Jesus' name. Amen.